that that's what entrepreneurship is right it's not about just you making money it's about mm. helping others fulfill their dreams right like right. so if she if she can you know uh, buy a house because we did well for ourselves and mm. for others i think that's a pretty good sort of reason to make money hi hello namaste to all my listeners i'm your host sarthak varshne and i welcome you all to the balls of steel show where you get an insight into the business mindset of the entrepreneurs dhandoni soch so hi guys today we have someone really 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 awesome with us you know and the reason i say awesome because it was the first time i had a meeting with him i had a really good vibe about it so that that's the whole reason that i call him really awesome plus i'm pretty sure that when we listen to his journey everyone of us is going to connect with him because i connected pretty well okay and that's the thing and also one other things that he happens to be the second investor and entrepreneur on uh, on our show so i'm really really happy to have him on board with us so let me welcome uh, him hi akhil welcome to the balls of steel show how are hi, you hi sarthak how are you doing so i'm so excited to be here thank you so much for inviting me thank you thank you so much akhil it's a pleasure to have you so akhil let me start by asking you the signature question of ours okay what is the business that you are into because of which we are going to say that you've got the balls of steel <laughs> i don't know uh, what qualifies to be considered as a business that gives me balls of steel but <laughs> i think uh, So I I would first and foremost call myself uh, edupreneur which is an entrepreneur in the education space. Okay. Uh so you know uh me and my wife now but you know a, a mm. girlfriend at that point started an education company in 2010 called on course. Okay. Uh, with a very simple mindset of mm. helping students who wanted to go abroad. Okay. Uh it was it was a uh, actually a a solution that uh, got born from a problem that we ourselves faced. Mm-hmm. when we ourselves were going abroad and we realized that uh, you know there's not enough companies or people who are providing the right kind of advice mm-hmm. who are actually you know giving unbiased views and who are actually able to guide a student end to end you know through the whole process and right with that in mind in 2010 when we graduated we just jumped into it and we we sort of started this company and then you know we've obviously grown it now over the last 10 11 years mm-hmm. and uh it's grown you know from uh, into now a 70 75 person organization across three cities and you know with clients over 100 countries who we deal with and uh, it's hey. uh, and it's matured into multiple services and it's i think the journey for us starting from a, a you know a dining table to uh, you know having like eight offices across the country has been really rewarding to be honest my god i mean no uh... I I have I've heard entrepreneurs uh, telling me that this started on a WhatsApp group this started over this part this is something new to me started on a dining table yeah because uh, see I'll tell you what when we graduated mm-hmm. right so I graduated uh, I remember the date it was 22nd of June 2010 okay uh, so we came back and Alicia you know my wife now had one more year of college mm-hmm. to left and mm-hmm. we had this idea and so we said listen let's give it a shot right Mm-hmm. so we you know created a name created a brochure put it out in a few groups and in 5 days we had our first consultation meeting okay. and obviously we didn't have an office or anything so you know we just did it on our dining table and uh, 
uh, you call someone home, try to make it as professional as possible. So for the first six months, yeah, we're literally a dining table company. Wow. Okay. Okay. That sounds really good. So that's so that's a good starter that we have in terms of what your journey probably would be looking like ahead. So we will dive into it. Okay. Okay. But before we actually get to the journey part, let's talk more about the business part. So like, why don't you guide me and you know tell me more details about the business? Like this is the initial part which you have told me the eight offices, hundred clients, and so many things. Give me more details. Like how is the how does the process really works? What exactly are you guiding the students about? and from what age factors are you picking your students more every detail about the business overall so sure, that my sure. listeners have, have the whole idea about on course advantage absolutely so so like i said you know like the our focus is really to solve mm-hmm. uh, any solution which any client has who's looking to study abroad mm-hmm. so whether that's at the high school level whether it's at an undergrad level whether it's at a postgrad level whether it's at okay. an mba level okay. uh, now what do we do we basically help them end to end on their applications uh, and with high school students, in fact, we work as early as even ninth grade to help plan for college. Okay. Um, and besides the counseling part of it, we also have uh, a test prep team which helps students prepare for the standardized tests that are required for, to go abroad. So the SAT, mm-hmm. ACT, GMAT, uh, yeah, we yeah. help with that whole uh, part of it. And, uh, you know, for us, you know, it's sort of grown organically into these additional services because... Uh, what started out as just pure undergraduate counseling obviously grew into undergraduate counseling from 12th grade to 11th grade to 10th grade to 9th grade, mm-hmm. moved to postgrad, went from master's to MBA, and then obviously organically into test preparation. And obviously, if there are a few other things we will move into, but connected to the similar space itself. Uh, so we have students, you know, who, who come to us as early as 9th grade and they say, listen, I need to start Mm-hmm. planning out my future and I need to start thinking about what I want to do when I want to go abroad mm-hmm. so when they when they already know that hey I want to go abroad we come in mm-hmm. we put we assign uh, assign them to two people on our on our team who sort of work very closely with them uh, guide them through their whole process mm-hmm. um, and after two or three years when they in their 12th grade they obviously help them through their whole application process get them into college right till they leave so it's a very hands-on you know field and this was okay. something which, you know, we feel very strongly about was because mm-hmm. when we were sort of going through it, we didn't have A, the right advice. We didn't have accessibility. We didn't know we had to, you know, start look, looking at things two or three years in advance. Right. Uh, we, we didn't have that sort of planning mentality, you know, and that's what we wanted to bring to the table, mm-hmm. uh, which parents really appreciate. And I think even beyond that, even at the at a master's and MBA level, we obviously, on that level, it's a little more connected to MBA, uh, right. to your career, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we obviously had to build a slightly more mature team with experience, uh, which took some time. And of course, once we were able to do it, now they're you know uh, really able to provide really good advice to students who are going abroad for different types of masters, right? Masters in engineering, masters in in computer science, masters right. in finance, or an, an MBA or an MBA two plus two. And there's just so many options available right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it's not just about uh, you know helping. Um, everyone through the process it's also providing the right advice right so there's so many times we turn away clients right like if someone comes and tells me listen i want to spend all my money on going abroad do you think it makes sense we'll say no like don't do it right like so there's so there's a a, a very strong uh value foundation that we have right when it comes to the the whole business and it kind of stems from us uh really scratching our own itch and i'll I'll be honest and that's how the i think the best businesses are built right and uh you know, and I think we're fortunate that through the whole process, uh, 
clients have been happy uh, so they've been willing to pay us well right. uh, employees have trust us trusted us early on you know who stuck with us right. and have sort of grown with us uh, mm-hmm. which has been you know like people who joined us associates and now become senior managers for five years later wow. uh, and who are running the whole team you know so it's it's really been a great evolution right um, and i think uh, we're super excited about what more we can do in education in general uh, within the study abroad space and even outside of it mm-hmm. but uh, i think the foundation that we've built the client base that we work with you know now we work with about 7 800 uh, new clients every year uh, so that gives us uh, you know there's a great trust which comes with that right um, and and we we hope to sort of you know maintain build on that trust keep adding value to our clients and right. finding new ways that we can you know uh guide them in the right possible direction okay okay that's now that's quite some details about what exactly do you do so guys now you have another person to look up to and especially if you're, if you're from bombay you know who to reach out to reach out to akhil reach out to onkors vantage and he'll get you abroad in the best way possible so akhil do you guys also provide placement opportunities to students uh, while you're helping them through onkors uh, you mean job placements yes So uh ironic you mentioned that we actually launched a vertical called Oncourse Jobs okay. uh, in 2019 and yeah, we yeah. tied up with like uh, a few companies and we were just piloting it uh yeah. into early 2020 and then you know uh, in April 2020 when you know yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. everything sort of shut, shut down uh-huh. we decided to put that on hold um okay. only because so it it makes logical sense because mm-hmm. uh, there are companies who are looking for solid entry level uh you know people people who they can trust and uh, there are people who are coming back from abroad who are looking for the right kind of jobs mm-hmm. uh, so there is that mismatch and we do see that opportunity but i i think at this point um we will focus on what's you know uh, in in our hands and honestly it's uh in the last year and a half we've seen a bit of a uh, you know online explosion right. uh, as we like to say uh, in the education business mm-hmm. and i think uh when things calm down and we can sort of start finding new sort of uh, avenues for growth i i would then look look back at this and look into it but mm-hmm. for right now we're staying away from placements mm-hmm. um yeah but i think we will we will pick it up again in the future so so akil what's your opinion about you know the boom that we have seen in the especially the ed tech sector now even we you as an investor also know that investors are kind of refraining from you know investing in the ed tech sector because they many of them say that you know it's 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 kind of becoming saturated now there are plenty of companies and for anyone to invest in any ed tech company is uh, is kind of a, you know they have to look at the deal very in in a lot of details so how do you think so that boom in the ed tech has a your business it's it's a little different for us to be honest mm-hmm. at oncourse and i can i can give you both views from uh, within oncourse and as an investor yes so please oncourse it's different because see our while we benefited from a similar boom of everyone being locked in mm-hmm. ours is coming from a point of frustration right uh, parents are frustrated they haven't gone uh, kids haven't gone to school or college in 15 to 18 months Mm-hmm. uh so 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 they feel like their kids are falling behind and to be honest they are really falling behind versus right. the rest of the world right mm-hmm. so uh, i think for us uh, we're seeing a boom more because parents are saying listen we need to give our kids the best possible education and the best possible education is not necessarily in india at the moment okay uh so so we're seeing that right? that's playing mm-hmm. out for us right is most other edtech companies those providing courses uh particularly the curriculum based courses are mm-hmm. seeing a boom because again parents uh, and kids feel like they need to learn 
Uh, schools are not able to provide them the right kind of platform to replace on uh, offline learning with online learning. So mm. naturally, these edtech companies have sort of been the natural replacement uh, for for these sort of uh, people, and and they've done sort of really well, right? In the last year and a half, I I don't need to sort of uh, you know sort of jump in on that. Yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. the other type of company which are into skilling, right? So the mm. skill based companies like Upgrad and things. So they've also done really well because again people are looking for uh, courses to sort of build up on their skills which get them employed so yeah. there's this whole employment gap also which they're trying to fill which i i think is a big opportunity which uh, i think you will see a lot of you know massive companies grow out of it and upgrad is obviously leading that evolution from what i can see right so that's from on course's point of view now from an investor's point of view I, I'll, i'll tell you so education is a growing sector uh it has seen this massive boom that's come in the last year and a half hmm. how much of that boom will sustain i don't know because i i think once kids go back to school and college hmm. uh, will they still turn to online classes i i have my doubts okay. right but then there's part of me which also believes that the habit is getting formed hmm. uh so there will be a, a, a large chunk or maybe a, at least 50% of them who will say listen i will hmm at least do some sort of classes online but i will you know still prefer to go back to my offline education right because okay. i think we've all sort of realized that the subtle advantages of an offline education can't be replaced with online education right so now right. when that happens and the edtech numbers will obviously won't be as robust as they are today right you may not see as much of jump in valuations and things right mm. now and and what's invariably happening which happens in all sectors is there's mm. just a few companies which are going to dominate Right. So Byju's is going to dominate Vedantu an academy they're, they're going to sort of dominate the sector and anyone who's small and growing will either get acquired or will die away mm-hmm. uh now for us you know we are not a tech company but an education company that leverages technology and I I like right. to sort of differentiate that because for us that means uh we don't compete with these guys uh, you know okay. we we have a niche audience right. uh, who who pays us well we are profitable and we sort of live off the profit we aren't mm-hmm. funded Right. Uh, we have strategic partners but no no real funding to speak about and we're sort right. of happy that way mm-hmm. um so i think for us it's it's a little different mm-hmm. uh, but as an investor right now your there's going to be a, a massive consolidation that already has played out to be honest right. so unless someone finds a nice vertical niche which these guys have missed out on and then you're sort of banking on mm-hmm. one of these guys coming and saying hey i can't do this myself so let me acquire these guys mm-hmm. i I think you're going to struggle to really make money as an investor in in edtech in early stage investing for sure. Okay, it's that's that's very very insightful as an investor. So guys, now that if you're planning to start an edtech company or something around it, you have an insight and you really know what an investor also thinks about it. So I would say uh get into the pool or get into the mud only after a good thought process okay so uh, akhil you mentioned that you know uh, you guys have offices across eight cities in the country so what are those eight cities no no so the offices actually are in three cities which is okay. Bom- which is basically bombay uh, mm-hmm. delhi and ahmedabad okay. but we have partners uh, what we call like marketing partners uh, mm-hmm. across the world so we have them in singapore indonesia hong kong Wow. Ra- Raipur, uh, right raipur we have one in uh, antwerp uh, and one in kenya so broadly uh, what the way we function and the reason we don't have more offices is because we mm-hmm. like to keep our servicing centralized mm-hmm. but our marketing decentralized if that makes any sense 
just to just to keep you know control of the service and quality that we do we provide mm-hmm. uh, we want to make sure that you know uh, our those who are providing the service mm-hmm. stay together so they're trained well um, and we don't spread ourselves too thin which we actually you know we we realized the hard way mm-hmm. uh, we've had offices in bangalore before and calcutta and things and we've had to shut them down okay and we've now decided that we will just grow these offices out mm-hmm. and through technology we will reach out to clients all over the world which is obviously what what one should do okay okay so i mean these are quite a few number of offices and this technique i mean you say you you kind of say said that you know you don't know if it makes sense or not but it does make a lot of sense having services centralized and marketing decentralized that that is an, that is really an amazing way of uh, you know reaching out to wider audiences having you know the headquarters still intact and the service quality intact so i would love to understand your mindset about how did you and when did you decide that you guys need to grow this way what was the whole process that went through your head that, that taught you or that gave you that hint that okay now we need to expand then what was the strategic thinking so i want to know about that process from when you decided okay from bombay now this is the next city then this and that i want to know that part so to be honest you know sarthak i'd love to tell you that you know this was all preplanned and you know we had this vision and we sort of ran with it but you know we were 22 23 year olds uh, yeah. we had grand plans we had grand visions so early on you know uh, we got into one really bad partnership uh, okay. with a, uh, which i i won't delve too much into but i'll tell you the reason we got into the partnership was we we sort of got swayed into a, 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 a you know deeper vision and uh, mm. and even though we we knew the the partners were not the right kind of partners at that mm. age and stage we we felt it was worth a shot uh, in hindsight it was a really bad call and within one year we tried to mm. um, you know unwind it and you know it was a little bit ugly but we got out of it and mm. uh, uh, that was one one harsh lesson we learned was uh, partnerships in uh, businesses are almost like marriages so make sure you know you you know who you're getting that marriage in uh, you know who you're getting married to right. uh, who you're getting into bed with uh, that's like super important um yeah and then early on you know we so we we built a partnership with the gmat tutor in bangalore and we opened an office there and you know we got so many clients that we were unable to service them all really well mm-hmm. um and that obviously it affected me personally pretty deeply because i sort of didn't enter this business with a mentality of you know growth at all costs which a lot of people have now like for me it was a making sure that every kid is sort of treated really well mm-hmm. and we weren't able to do that so we shut the office down and we really like hunkered down and said okay what are our main cities let's focus on that and we we realized that bombay and delhi are the key core cities in which we want to and we we said that for two reasons right one bombay obviously we were already there right. but also these are the two cities which have the highest purchasing power have the highest number of kids going abroad Mm-hmm. Uh, at least from an undergrad perspective which is where we were strong at that stage right uh, postcard is much bigger in the south uh, and we decided like you know we'll we'll grow step by step mm-hmm. and i thought i think that that evolution just came uh from making mistakes mm-hmm. uh so really it was a lot of like trial and error which led us to sort of you know uh, go down that path and then you know as we started building our team out and felt okay and we now have the capacity we can really do a marketing outreach because the other challenge we face are the was sort of building out our team right right uh, it's not a really sexy sector to be in you know education and and you know this is pre byju so you have to think about it like who wants to join a ed- education company in right. 2013 right like so and and of course you know education salaries were never great uh 
so attracting someone to that sector took time it's not what it, it is today right like today mm. we, we can compete with the EYs and the PWCs of the world back then right. we were you know like much lesser and you know it's tough to get that kind of talent and we're looking for people who maybe studied abroad uh, who have strong communication skills mm. and and those people don't come cheap so for us to just build out a team took really long mm. and once we started building out the team and then once we built out a really good culture and once that sort of ha- started happening organically mm. i think we got more confidence that hey we can now go and really put our our time and money behind marketing and i think that's sort of how it just built up from there okay 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 that's 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 a great thing yeah so so uh, you know akil there are a couple of things where we'll go one by one here the first thing which which you just now mentioned that building team was difficult so why don't you give me some insight from your team building experiences how was it like and how much time did you really take to build that strong team of yours from where you know the growth really picked up so and uh, what were the setbacks that you really faced and what did it teach you what was the what did how did it help you grow your mindset there so honestly uh we started full fledged hiring uh in 2012 2013 i would say and okay i would say we really started building out a strong team from 2015 uh the 2013 to 15 you know we made some some so you have to realize like our, our salary levels were not competitive so mm. we made some what i would call average hires mm. and uh and you know for clients they would always compare uh these people to us and you know it would there would always be a big discrepancy and we started realizing that you know uh we should never compromise on quality so mm-hmm. it was more important to sort of get people in um who sort of bought into the vision who where we were not compromising which meant even if you know it took long to wait it out to find the right person mm-hmm. uh, who really fit the bill right and as we started doing that we also obviously were trying to develop a good corporate culture one which was you know flat uh, open office no politics mm-hmm. uh, no bullshit basically right? right uh who just you know people who were efficient who got down who were happy to deal with the client were very client first in that approach mm-hmm. uh were, were very you know and with a small team right this was at that point a 10 12 person team so we needed people who were uh ready to sort of think about this as their own venture also mm-hmm. uh and i think while i'll be honest we made some bad hires we also made some fantastic hires some of whom are with us even till today right right um, and that sort of uh, trial and error even at that stage helped and i think by 2015 we really got the hang of it and okay. frankly you know uh we decided we want, we need to invest more in people uh we found ways to make sure that growth was sort of well charted out i think one thing people really want is not just to join a small company but when they join a small company they want to know like hey how quickly am i going to grow mm-hmm. uh, what what's my growth path really going to look like it's that you know uh i guess that lack of transparency that a lot of companies have that really trouble people mm-hmm. so people we trying to be as transparent as you know uh, as possible to say hey you need to spend this much time this is the sort of result we want these are your kpis uh mm-hmm. this is what we really expect from you and and you know when you give them measurable kpis and tell them hey this is what we want from you mm-hmm. and if they if they meet meet it you know they know they've met it if they fall short they know they've fallen short so so their performance is no longer subjective it's very objective right that sort of transferability of moving away from a subjective performance to objective is was super important right. and i think in general maintaining culture uh and just growing it out uh you know i guess person by person i would literally say 
right. has been like crucial. And I think by 2015, and honestly, what I found is the reason why you need to make good hires is because good hires attract good hires. Right. Uh, it just it just happens like that, right? Like, so if, if you see someone who's really smart working at a company, like, oh wow, they they really must be hiring the smart like smart people, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, invariably, that's the way our mindset started shifting. Was you know, uh, and you know what we started finding a lot of uh, people we rejected ended up on our competitors' team pages, and we were sort of excited about that. We said, hey, okay, so they're building their roster with our rejections, right? Uh, and and that's fine because that just shows us that you know our the kind of people we are hiring we're willing to sort of screen them out to that level wow okay okay so that's that's quite an intensive team building process that i would say that you guys have gone through so what was the team like between 2010 to 2013 was the was it only you and alicia or was it so it was very bare bones we had like uh, two or three other employees uh, okay. we had an admin staff so 2010 to 11 you have to realize we didn't we didn't even have an office 11 onwards we got an office and we started right. sort of, uh, you know really shaking from there uh-huh. um, i would say 11 is when we really kicked um, you know i think it, it, it 10 to 11 we were still in like listen let's see how this goes situation right uh, you know uh, i have to tell you you know like alicia was graduating from harvard it was a lot of responsibility we felt uh, mm-hmm. that you know to prove to ourselves that hey this is really going to work or not work you know right and i think that first year and see this is the advantage of sort of doing it early Mm-hmm. is there's not much pressure to own money at 22 or 23 right mm-hmm. uh, you the, the key is to just sort of set a foundation for your future mm-hmm. and i think at that stage we the first year we worked with like 25 clients uh uh each of who paid us pretty well and we we felt like okay you know if they can trust 22 year old kids mm-hmm. uh surely as we professionalize as we standardize and really 22 year old kids working out of home mm-hmm. surely they can you know will trust us as we grow as we as we build more experience and and then we felt like okay we we can now sort of get our hands in so we we did a few initial couple hires uh, mostly through personal networks okay. um and and there was pros and cons over there uh, mm-hmm. we had some you know almost like working with friends and stuff is it's interesting but that dynamic between friendship and boss is it's a bit of a mess if if you ask me honestly right. um and it sort of you know you know we had the two of them sort of uh, people who sort of joined us early on leave within a year and a half uh, mm. one went i think both sort of went to study uh, further okay. and it sort of left us in the lurch and it sort of you know ha- now you know that sort of also help us build a understanding that we need to bring in people mm. who can give us a longer term commitment um, and i i think that early experiences of really getting our own hands dirty like like frankly you know Uh, mm-hmm. at that stage when i sort of think back at it we were really working like long long hours during season you know like we were really working long hours and we never complained i guess it was just like it felt like hey this isn't so bad uh, and i guess this is what you're supposed to do right and you know we used to like each work with like 30 35 clients it was no big deal today you know our mentors work with 15 to 17 clients at most uh, so just to give you a perspective on like uh, how much we were sort of taking on at that stage uh-huh. but um Yeah I think one of the mistakes we made was we didn't systemize very early. Uh, we were sort of you know uh, the the structure of having two people on a case and stuff came after these initial employees sort of left where we said okay we really need to buckle down on our systems and we really need to sort of move away from being more of a almost like a family oriented company to a 
a, a serious corporatized entity right and this yeah. is a stage where you know there weren't too many education consulting companies uh, there were more education counselors but no education consulting companies if you know what i mean so right. that that get people to sort of open their eyes up to even that possibility mm-hmm. uh, at that stage was as it is taking time so we said we need to sort of set the set the foundation and then you know as obviously competitors started coming up from 2013 onwards it became more systemized automatically because parents were more used to it and we ourselves knew we had to sort of you know get things in order at that point okay okay that's that's a nice thing so akil uh, the other thing that you mentioned was that you know there were couple of things which you had to learn the hard way and because of that you had to shut down offices in kolkata and bangalore and couple of few more places so was it the, this hard thing was it the partnership only or was it something else also yeah it was a combination uh, partnership i think you know without delving again too deep into it okay. i would say it was um, more just partnering with the wrong people okay uh, again you know it didn't match our our value system uh, right. if, if i can sort of put it like that in education mm-hmm. you can do business in multiple ways right mm-hmm. uh, we always wanted to do business the right way mm-hmm. uh, we and that was one thing we sort of you know see we 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 left uh, like i i come from the finance world uh, alisha had the opportunity to work in marketing and you know we we knew we could have done well professionally if we decided mm-hmm. to go that path but the reason we chose this path one was because we saw the opportunity but second we also wanted to do something that we felt we were passionate about right, right. so it we weren't really chasing the money at that stage it was just a function of you know providing the best possible advice to the most possible people uh and i think partnering with people who don't follow that same value ethos as you is a real big mistake mm-hmm. because it like we like i said right you know, partnerships equity partnerships are like marriage and one needs to sort of think through it like that right um uh, for me quite literally obviously since i married my girlfriend at that point but uh but that partnership didn't didn't sort of pan out and i think that growth at all costs that you know uh, they had their mentality on right something i realized is not going to work in this sort of business because mm. at the end of it you know i felt like one happy customer gets you 10 one disappointed customer shuts your operation down overnight uh right. it's it's literally that that simple right and and i i was not going to go down that path and which is why when we sort of ended that partnership one year later mm-hmm. uh, we i think at that stage decided we will just focus on what we are good at mm-hmm. rebuild and then come out stronger the following year i i i get that i get that okay so uh, on this part like from the from business perspective from on course if i have to ask you what was that one biggest failure that you faced okay what would that be biggest failure that's an interesting one um i mean i guess uh, i guess the uh so we've had a bunch of failed products uh okay. we've we've got into tutoring maybe twice and had to shut it down because we were too early into the game and you know we were doing many things i think mm-hmm. sometimes uh i think our biggest failure early on was trying to do too many things okay uh, we were launching a tech platform we were uh, you know trying we have we were doing masters mba undergrad we were trying to get into tutoring mm. we had a, a a women's program we were running uh, and i guess as a startup you know that's part of it right like trying to do as many things and then trying to figure it out but i think we spread ourselves too thin too early uh, right. if i can go back in time i would say let's have a razor sharp focus and really sort of build our, which is what we're doing now actually 
Okay. So it's taken me 10 years to sort of, you know, uh, reach that point where I've said, okay, this is what we're good at. This is what we're going to build. And this is what, and the, the compounding impact and effect that that has in terms of your audience, uh, where you're well known, um, not just to clients, but just to employees, to competitors, where you say, listen, this is my area and I'm going to defend this with all my life. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead of constantly venturing into new areas, right, or new mm-hmm. geographies, uh, mm-hmm. and I think if I had if we had done that early on, we would have been able to grow a lot faster, a lot quicker. Okay, uh, but it's all part of the learning journey. So I think that was an early failure, which I wish you know we could have corrected. Uh, okay, and the other thing I wish you know uh, we had done a little more of is is trusting ourselves, right? So so we always felt like listen you know how can we charge so much or how can we you know it was it was a mm-hmm. we kept selling ourselves short sometimes mm-hmm. uh, without realizing that hey you know what is the customer willing to pay and what is the value of our service and mm-hmm. um, and not realizing that the the more you charge a customer who's willing to pay that to you the mm-hmm. more you can pay an employee and hence be able to attract better employees and hence be able to get better customers so it's really a virtuous cycle, uh, but it took us, again, some time and maybe some mentoring to sort of figure that out, mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, in education, the quality of your service and price are sometimes connected wrongly. Uh, and sometimes, you know, unlike retail, uh, if you price too low, people think you're not as good, uh, when you may actually be three times better. Right. Right, 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 right. This is this is something that you know a couple of more people have to, told me also when uh, you know I have been trying to get some help. That Sadak sometimes giving out some sort of services for free or sometimes valuing your product too low gives people a mindset that this is not valuable enough. So you need to set the benchmarks and keep the product values high so that they start valuing it. So that's again a good insight that you are giving and you know we your, your live example tells this thing that you need to value the product so listeners this is again a good insight for you start valuing your product at a good price so okay how how much time did you really take you know to get to the right value for your service and what was uh, i won't ask you the numbers but what was the you know let's say the multiplier from the prices that you went to let's say x did you went to 10x 5x what was it like yeah so i mean honestly uh, for the same service that we offered uh, eight years ago we now charge about 7x Okay. Um, of that, so we we move pretty quickly. Um, it, it's it's not normal. Uh, how quickly we move, but we we started pretty low, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, we are now at the upper end of the spectrum, and you know, uh, we can no longer grow in terms of X. We can only grow in terms of percentage on price. Right. But but I think uh, uh, the first two or three years, I would say, I think what it did was, even though we didn't charge as much as we should have. Right. We built a really solid client base, mm-hmm. uh, which I can't. I have to sort of focus on because the fact that we were able to build such a strong client base, mm-hmm. and, and you know, uh, that gave us the platform on which we could then build and go charge. So you know, I guess part of it is is you can't start at you know ten x right from day one, mm-hmm. uh, but you should by by your by day two or day three you sh- you need to start thinking about it and start saying okay. What is the full value of my service? And again, I, I have to sort of point out we were 23, 24 at that time. So our mentality needed some shaping. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we were fresh out of college. Uh, and and even the money we were making at that point seemed like, a, you know, like, oh, we're doing pretty well for ourselves. It didn't feel like, hey, what, how, how should I be building this out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think just that maturity uh, maybe came in two or three years 
after it should have okay i get it so that's that's all about on course advantage that i would probably want to learn from you now let's talk about how did you jump into the investment sector what was the tipping point oh okay so that's interesting so so i got to first tell you like i'm always sort of been interested in finance right so okay. my internships in college uh, when i was in chicago were also in finance uh, mm-hmm. i did one in investment management uh, i did one in investment banking uh, was actually had a job offer to work at a hedge fund straight out mm-hmm. um, but you have to remember i graduated at a time when finance was on very shaky grounds right and it wasn't even certain that i would be able to get my my h1b uh, right so i decided at that point listen i want to come home um and i i came i came home with the mentality if i want to start something mm-hmm. or i want to definitely get into business i did not have an idea that i want to get into education or anything okay but uh i think that finance bug sort of stayed with me even when i moved to into on course mm-hmm. uh was always interested in the public markets was always uh, sort of fascinated with uh how companies worked um i think that that fascination didn't go away right. um very quickly and i think so we got a, a strategic partner onto on course in 2013 who's you know uh, uh who was from the finance world right. and i think uh, even you know having his mentorship really sort of cemented that even further mm-hmm. and in 2017 uh, finally uh, you know it was his uh, you know when we we spoke once and he was at that point phasing out of on course uh, you know and uh, he's obviously a little bit older he's you know uh, just entered his 60s so a different stage of his life and mm. that's when i sort of reached out to him and said listen you know you have all this experience uh, you've you know been in finance for so many years you were part of the team that sort of eventually led into the founding of indusin bank and all these other amazing things wow. why don't we why don't we uh, try to start a fund together you know and him my other partner and me we eventually sort of launched uh decimal and we sort of got into uh, the pms side of things which is a whole you know different game right uh, side by side i also honestly through him uh got introduced into the world of private investment which okay. started in 2016 you know um where you know i we you know he was making an, an investment into a rental car company called rev mm-hmm. uh where i sort of also came in and uh along with that even a, a biryani company called bbk right. where i got the opportunity to invest alongside him so it was really him who sort of you know got me into the private space and then i think in 2018 i i really became uh, and remember the whole time i'm still super passionate about private public markets and public markets has been my focus right but uh, in 2018 i really started delving deep into a twitter personality called novel I don't know mm. if if you've heard of Naval Naval Vikant. Yes, absolutely yes. Naval. Yes. So yes. one of the things that you know I really picked on from Naval and his journey and everything was uh, how a lot of the the bets he made in his life were uh, asymmetric which right. essentially means they were limited downside, you know, uh, you know, highest possible upside. Mm-hmm. Um and he spoke a lot about angel investing being sort of in that domain. Mm-hmm. and i i said i kept sort of thinking about it and i kept looking at the public markets and i i kept saying you know these are the markets where you you make bets you get opportunities uh, of course you can make occasional life changing investments but it's rare uh, maybe mm-hmm. there's one or two such investments that a public markets guy would make in a, in his whole life and then he he has to also have the gumption to be able to hold on 
But in the angel space, uh, I felt the opportunity to sort of work with founders, uh, to share that journey with them, to uh, understand what's going on, you know, with, with your ears to the ground. Mm-hmm. I, I got super interested in that. And I said, hey, this is something which I, I really need to look into, right? So I uh, reached out to a friend who was part of uh, Angel Network and he introduced me to the Angel Network IAN. Mm-hmm. And I got in, uh, uh, inducted in there in 2017. Okay. And uh, from then, I've been sort of investing through IAN. Okay. And, you know, made some pretty, uh, you know, interesting company in, uh, investments, done uh, a few in edtech, few consumer tech, uh, mm-hmm. done a few SaaS companies. And then, you know, obviously, just as you build your own name in the network, uh, right. you start getting deals through through other sources like AngelList or mm-hmm. uh, through friends who you have in the network. And I think it sort of just compounds, right? Like pretty much anything in life is like, and and the difference between the public and the private markets, what I've realized is the public market, uh, Sarthak and Akhil can sort of invest in the same company. They're both given access to the same information right. and there's no difference, right? right? But in the private markets, that access and that uh, availability into the deal is really what it's all about. And that's why people are willing to pay funds, whatever they are at the private space, because they themselves can't get into those deals, right? You can't get into Zomato in a Series B or Series C. You can get into Zomato in pre-IPO, but you can't get into Zomato in a Series B. Right. So, the, so the thing was, is just building a network enough to have access to the right kind of deals. Because I also started realizing that there's a certain type of deal which everyone wants to get into. Mm-hmm. And those are the type of deals you have to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a certain type of deals. And there's tons of deals which keep floating around right which which can which come to you through networks and everything and and and, and those are the ones which are what we call uh, easy access right mm-hmm. but it's the it's the hard access deals which you can which you have to work your way into uh, that actually makes the difference because that's where you really get that uh, that upside you know right 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 okay so basically if i have to you know uh, nail it down to the one tipping point that is your mentor, your strategic partner, because of whom you got into the investment part, right? I guess he formalized my uh, uh, interest pretty, uh, you know, uh, strongly. And, and and honestly, that it really helped to have that experience mm-hmm. sort of uh, behind you also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely, it just sort of opened the door. And then once it opened the door, obviously, it was on me, you know, whether I wanted to sort of... Uh, you know, continue down that path or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've made maybe 15 or 20 private uh, investments since then. So, uh, and I evaluate maybe, I would say 15 or 20 every month, uh, but I've only made 15 or 20 in the last four years. So just to, just to tell you how selective I am also, right. is, is you just sort of have to build out your own uh, criteria, the type of people that you sort of want to work with, mm-hmm. the sort of company you want to invest in. So I think that, Definitely, uh, part of that my thinking got shaped by him uh, mm-hmm. and my other partner. But I think, in sense, uh, you every person has to build their own individual thought process and thesis. You know, right, right. Okay, so Akhil, did you ever thought in your lifetime that you would become an investor, or was it even on your list while you were running on course that you will switch to becoming an investor? You know, I was always investing in public markets side by side. Uh, okay. Like I said, I was always passionate about it. And uh, you got to be honest, like any money I made was going into the markets at that stage. Remember, we were 
young, right? So we didn't uh, have too much of overheads and it was just drinking money, right? At that stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, right. so uh, you know, I think it was pretty much going into the markets. I was sort of, again, trial and error. That's sort of my best way of learning has always uh, been trial and error. And I'm, I'm a pretty voracious reader. Okay. Uh, so I've like devoured a lot of investment books. So I've, I've built my own philosophy through that. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, you know, as you read more, you start realizing that, you know, you don't, you're, you're not like everyone else. And just because you read a, a, a book on trading, you don't have to become a trader. And just because you read a book like on Warren Buffett, you don't have to sort of invest like him. So mm-hmm. you have to sort of build out and say, okay, what is my philosophy? What kind of companies do I want to invest in? So the truth is, I always knew that uh, I will be a investor in one form or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't. I did not know whether it'll be my day job mm-hmm. or just my my weekend job as it as it was. Uh, and I still, you know, I still look at it like that. I still look at it like, listen, I'm I'm in this because I love it. I'm in this because I really enjoy sort of analyzing companies, uh, mm-hmm. and I enjoy analyzing businesses. Right? It also it just helps me sort of stay informed. I, I sort of have this like slight FOMO of, you know, not being informed about something. So yeah. I think this being in the investment space helped me with that more than anything else, I feel. Okay, okay, okay. So before we actually jump to the other other parts, you know, Akhil, I would want to know since you, as you mentioned that, you know, you've been investing by, since you were 2024 and majorly in the public market, but you have been investing because you had less overheads. I would love to understand what have been your personal finance, uh, financial management plans since that age and how have they changed till the current point? It's evolved. Uh, I think, so So one is, uh, I learned early on never to not to use too much leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I realized it's a pretty deadly tool that can make you a lot of money, but lose you a lot of money also quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's one thing I've sort of tried to build. But of course, you know, I think that's something which no matter how many times you hear and until you get burnt, you don't really realize that. Right. So I think that's that that's one one part I have. And second, I think what's um, really uh, changed for me is just the way I'm sort of investing. I I, I don't look to. So I used to be a uh, have the mentality a trader mentality in the sense that listen, you're making money take money off the table. I used to keep having this take money off the table mentality. And what ended up happening was I ended up selling really good companies and okay. ended up holding on to loser companies. Uh, okay. and, and it's the exact opposite thing that one that a really good investor should do. They should sit on their winners for as long as possible and cut their losers as soon as possible. Um, okay. and, and I think that is one thing which uh, I've realized is is the compounding effect that a winner can give you mm-hmm. uh, is pretty insane. And I think what happens with losers is we sort of move into this loss aversion mode mm-hmm. where we feel like, oh, I don't want to take a loss on this, you know. And mm-hmm. what happens is then your buy price sort of becomes your target price. Mm-hmm. And invariably, you just uh, sit on them waiting, you know, and without any hope of, of that company really performing well or anything, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I realized that as you start analyzing businesses, as you start tracking businesses, as you start understanding how they're doing on a quarter to quarter basis, mm-hmm. you have to make hard decisions on which companies you want to continue to hold. And and, and, and don't mean that from a point of view. And, and the amount of money you've already made on that company should be mm-hmm. irrelevant in that decision making process. So I think that thinking has sort of shaped, changed. Right. Second, I've always been 100% equity 
but you know I, I had a daughter last year so my thinking's changed a little bit since then you know you just sort of want a little more security and mm-hmm. you want a little bit more so i've obviously started keeping some more amount in fixed income mm-hmm. uh which i think someone in their 30s should have some amount at least um i think and and i think beyond that uh you know my i think anyone who's investing through sips is probably best off Mm -hmm. uh just choose good funds and keep investing forever in fact i've made my admin staff in the office also start sips uh, and they keep thanking me for it uh (laughs) and i keep telling them that hey you're going to do much better than i am in the markets because uh you're just you know uh, constantly averaging out your investments so frankly sips is a fantastic form of investing in equities for anyone who doesn't want to bother to track a company because See, when you buy a stock, you're buying a company. You have to analyze the company. You have to track the performance. You mm-hmm. don't just sit on it and just wait, right? You have to actually mm-hmm. actively analyze. Right. And when I say actively analyze, I don't mean every day and keep looking at the stock price. You right. have to look at the information that the company puts out on a you know a quarterly basis, a half yearly basis. And you know, see, when we when we sort of run companies, we don't have a monthly or a daily mindset, right? We have a yearly or a three yearly or a five yearly or a decadely sort of mindset right. and you know when you invest you got to invest with the same mindset and i think that thinking has evolved also uh, over the last i guess 5 6 years right okay so that's that's quite an evolution but is there any sort of a rule for your income or for whatever that you make or since the early 24s or did you have a rule when you were uh, in your 20s like you no know, 50 30 20 rule or something like that that you would follow for yourself So my rule was invest as much as I possibly can um okay. and consume as little as I possibly can uh okay. I, it, again I mean that's that that was always my rule it still is my rule uh hmm. except I guess now again the mindset has shifted a little bit where one says hey you know uh you you need to start enjoying your life to some extent and uh, you know don't not going to curb yourself on a vacation or Uh, and you know it's it's like i said it's different when you're married and have kids and it's different when you're single right when you're single you can really buckle down and i i think at that stage the more you save the better because that mm. you can pretty much save like you know 70 75% of your income if you're staying uh, at home but if you're staying on a rented place you could still save about 25 30% of your income and that mm-hmm. should ideally be pushed uh, straight away into some form of investment right. um and i i use the word investment different from a trade because a lot of people have the trading mentality mm. with the stock market particularly say now when the stocks are doing so well mm. uh, one one needs to just sort of have that long term mindset and the best long term mindset is to put it and forget about it right i mean the way i i think about it sometimes is that you know uh so i'm a foodie okay i love having mm. a lot of food so i would think mm. that other you just had a burger forget mm. about it or you went for a good dinner forget about it that's mm. it just mm. i imagine that way that i had a good food it's my it's in my appetite now instead of pooping it out that money is going to reap me out something in the upcoming year so that's the way i think so uh definitely sometimes it does feel probably that you know you want to use that money somewhere else or something like that but over the in the long run it's going to help a lot you know in a much much bigger way so so like like i think pretty big believer in compound interest uh, right. pretty big believer in compounding in general but like so there was this this one stat right which i i read which sort of like blew my mind right uh-huh. which is if you take like 1000 rupees today right. and you compound it at 15% kago like 15% per annum right uh, for 100 years hmm. 
uh, Sartak, what do you what do you think that's going to end up with in a hundred for hundred years? I mean, I, honestly, I'm not that good with compound interest math, but probably somewhere around ten crores. It's actually a hundred and seventeen crores. Oh my god! So that's that's the thing, right? With compound interest, it just it really yes. it really and the, and the thing is, ninety nine years you're at fifty crores, so it's it it, it takes uh, so much, uh, you know, uh, not not nine ninety seven years you're at fifty fifty right. So what I'm trying to say is like, you know, you have to sort of uh, think about the value of money in that sense. And mm-hmm. what the problem is when I start thinking like this, uh, you don't feel like consuming, you know, and, and then and then I also need to say, hey, I have a, I want to maintain a quality of life that, yeah. uh, you know, that doesn't, you know, my wife's not going to point at me and, and say, hey, what the hell are you doing? Right. So, <laughs> uh, so I think as you evolve, that evolves also. But mm-hmm. that, that mindset's not sort of gone away that, you know, the value uh, of money invested uh, is is huge. Right, right. I mean, honestly, I am a huge believer of the rich dad, poor dad, and the Robert Kiyosaki. What is that? That your money needs to work for you, and this is the best way the money works for you. It's Absolutely. like the warriors. It's like the warriors out there, the pawns out there, fighting their fights off, and you know, getting something back for you. And they don't come back uh, empty-handed. They always come back with something. So that's this is actually the best way. And, and you know, you you have heard this with thousand rupees. I have. I don't remember where did I read this, but I read it with one dollar. Probably some some book only that if yeah. you start investing one dollar on a daily basis, probably five years or ten years, uh, you'll you'll be a, not even five years, even earlier than that, you'll be a millionaire if you do it one dollar on a daily basis, and then you start compounding it. It's 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 insane amount that it works, right? So compounding effect just adds like a boom to to your wealth. So yeah, I mean it's, it's it's actually it's pretty insane, and and honestly, the thing is. Uh, for those who haven't gotten into it, it's honestly never too late. Start mm. ASAP. Uh, I I think like until you do it, you don't see see the benefit in it. And and of course, there are people who sort of get into it at the mm. wrong times. Also, like I I know people would have started investing right now, mm. and maybe in two years their portfolios will be down, mm. uh, and they'll be upset about it. But the, the truth is, in five years they'll be fine. So the, mm. the great part about the markets is uh, they keep moving forward, right? Right. And and they're sort of linked with the uh, overall growth of the economy hmm. uh, so as long as you believe that the economy is going to keep growing over the next 5 10 15 20 years hmm. a, a fluctuation of 10% down or 10% up shouldn't bother you here or there absolutely okay so that's a very good insight that we have from your akhil's i mean from your mind akhil about investments and how you invest and why you invest all that part so akhil You've been talking about that you're a finance guy. You have worked into finance. But there was very a very slight statement where you mentioned that you invested in SaaS companies and all the tech companies. So what I really want to know now is, uh, what is this uh, one thing about technology that really fascinates you? Why why are you getting to the tech part a lot when you are such good with numbers? It's interesting. Uh, see, I, I think as an investor, you have to evolve also. You, have, you need to think about what the... F- you know, uh, frontier of the future is, right? And mm-hmm. and I think we're already seeing that now with Zomato IPOing and those sort of things. I, I think the old school Warren Buffett, uh, Benjamin Graham approach to investing is shifting mm-hmm. uh, away from just pure, you know, value investing towards growth investing. We already saw that with the FANG stocks, you know, in the US, mm-hmm. uh, your Facebooks and Amazons and Microsofts and Apples. Uh, just trading at insane valuations that you know we couldn't even fathom, right? Like mm. uh, maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, but they're also doing things that we couldn't fathom ten or fifteen years ago. So uh, I think 
we, we need to move and think about uh, which are the companies that are going to shape our society, which are the companies that are going to shape our uh, country, which are the companies that could possibly shape the world uh, mm-hmm. tomorrow, right? And you, you sort of want to be part of that journey. And and of course, if you if you if you pick the right ones, you could make a lot of money doing it. But but more than that, you get to sort of see that evolution and that sort of growth. And yes, I do see the irony in sort of taking money out of a profitable business to invest it into unprofitable businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do see the complete and total irony over there. But I I don't view it like that. I view it uh, as you know being a partner in these ventures. Uh, and in in for example, in uh, in one SaaS uh, education. At tech company, I am uh, on the board as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm able to add value through, you know, uh, my own sort of experience in education and sort of, you know, opening doors for them uh, to universities and those sort of things. But I, I see the how quick they move. I see uh, how aggressive they are. I see the way their product evolves, not on a monthly or, or quarterly basis, but on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I and I think that that sort of hunger to sort of shape an industry or shape the world really rubs off, you know, and, and that's, and that's the part that like, I'm excited to be part of that, you know? Um, mm. And, and, you know, uh, so th- while there is a monetary angle to it, I think there's a whole, uh, like I said, FOMO angle of like, Hey, listen, I want to be at the mm. frontier of these sort of companies that are, are doing some amazing things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I get it. So Hill, that's a good insight, you know, as to why you're getting towards the tech part and the growth thing that you talk about. And somewhere, you know, I am relating this whole growth mindset coming down to the core point wherein if you look at it that every employee today also talks about growth. But the key difference that I can actually after talking to you that I can think of is about looking at it from a monetary perspective. So this is the way that you're talking about you want to be a part of the companies which are growing fast and so that you can grow with them and it's it's, it's about you now changing the whole mindset and changing the whole uh, tech game out there and the, the way companies are growing. But what people are totally looking towards are definitely they have grown in terms of the perspective that earlier they just wanted to be, they just wanted to settle down. Now they want to grow. Now even if I talk to some elderly person, sometimes they come up and say that, you know, I was in this job but I changed the job because I didn't see growth in it. And now I want to grow personally. So what do you think about this whole growth mindset starting to kick into people at all levels but certainly different in different geographies altogether? And then, uh, you know, relating it to the investment sector. What do you think about it? So... I think, you know, Sathak, it uh, comes down to a history of your country, right? Like, right? So, you know, in India, you know, you have to realize between 1947 when we got independence to mm. about 1980, uh, people were really poor. Uh, mm. Our families were all really poor, like in the sense that it was, everyone had to work so hard to get where they were, right? Mm. So the, the focus really was to save every single rupee that they made. Mm. Right, because they didn't know, and you know, the tax rates were so high, and everything was so high. So the mindset was uh, very saving and security oriented. Mm. Uh, you know, it was the generation of LIC, right? Like you wanted to sort of uh, make sure you had a head, uh, you know, roof over your head, mm. food on the table. That that was the mindset, right? Then came the next generation, which said, okay, let's start thinking about growth. But they mm. had firsthand seen the, uh, you know, I guess we would call the. The upswing or the 
or the hardships that their parents went through. Mm-hmm. And now comes this next generation, you know, um, our generation, the generation after, who's, who's mm-hmm. not really witnessed that level of hardship, right? Uh, and they're, and they're, and this is a globalized world now. They're seeing the rest of the world, how they live, where they live. Uh, and their mindsets are changing, right? The mm-hmm. mindset is now no longer security-oriented. It's very growth-oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's no longer, listen, I'm confined to my area. Like, I, mm-hmm. uh, if, you know, if I'm in Bombay, all I can do is think about, okay, where else uh, I can work within my sector in Bombay? Now, you can shift sectors, you can get, shift geographies, you can shift mm-hmm. countries. Um, the world is becoming a much smaller place and you have more information, right? That access to information makes you more aware of opportunities that are available to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, all you may have known is like, you know, within your own company or within your own department, how people were doing it. And then people will find to sort of, you know, be where they were in that sense, right? That that mindset is totally gone now. In fact, um, I think it's it's gone too far to some extent where people are, are not even uh, maybe giving certain jobs a chance before they try to hop, jump ship. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, so if you see the Japanese, right, the Japanese culture still, you have people who are uh, career-wide employees. So like they'll spend their whole career at one company versus mm. say in the US, that's probably the most rare thing you'll ever hear. So mm. uh, I, I think we're sort of somewhere in between right now because, you know, we have a very, uh, we revere the West to some extent. So we mm. try to follow everything they do. Um, and and I think the, the positive of that is that growth mindset has come in, which will force us to grow. Mm. Uh, it'll force companies to grow, right? So the, the minute a, uh, an employee wants to be made happy, you're like, okay, how do I make sure this employee grows? Mm. And the only way you can make sure all your employees grow is if your company grows. And if all the companies have this mindset, suddenly the economy grows. And if the economy grows, hey, guess what? Anyone who's invested in the economy grows with it. So Yay. I think that's, that's it's actually, a, it's a, a rising tide really, you know, lifts all ships. So uh, I think that's a real positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the downside, of course, is, you know, you're going to have uh, lower job satisfaction than ever before. You're going to have uh, higher levels of depression because people are always comparing themselves to others. Uh, so, hey, I'm saying this uh, on all levels. It's a double-edged sword. But, uh, you know, I think I think it's a, broadly it's a positive thing uh, with some negative side side effects. I get it. I get it. Okay. Okay. Uh, that, this is a great insight again. I mean, honestly, talking to you, you're kind of giving me perspective from the West to the East. And I, I guess you've been to all the places. How many countries have you been to? Uh, I don't I don't, I don't think I've actually... Personally, I don't love traveling. I read a lot. Like, I think that's that's where I get a lot of my perspective from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't put a little number on how many places I've been to. Uh, my okay. wife loves to travel, though. Okay. Uh, she's been to far more countries than I have. <laughs> okay. So how many books have you read? Ooh, I don't know. Probably, probably north of hundred, I would say. Okay, and if you want to recommend some books to our listeners, what what books would they be? I don't know. It really depends on your interest, you know. Like, okay, let's talk about the business books. Ah, uh, okay. I mean, so I'm a, I was a big fan of like autobiographies in general. It just gives you perspective on you know mm-hmm. people's journeys and those sort of things. So right. The Everything Store about Amazon or. Uh, reading about Elon Musk early in 2015, reading mm. about, about Bitcoin in 2014. Uh, you know, like that, That so I never ended up investing in Bitcoin, but hey, it taught me a lot about what Bitcoin was. Right. Uh, again, I wish I wish it was actionable and I had invested, but 
I think what, what it does is it just sort of opened my mind a lot. Uh, these sort of autobiography books. Uh, in terms of deep insights, I, I feel like uh, in, in investing, uh, Intelligent Investors is a really good book. Mm. Uh, the Howard Marks book, uh, you know, Mastering the Market Cycle, his, his more recent one is really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one by Monish uh, Pabrai called The Dhando Investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's a fantastic investor, by the way. So I I fully respect him for that. Um, that's a really good book. And uh, there's Saurabh Mukherjee's Coffee Can Investing, which is uh, I think superb also because he he follows such a simple mentality of you know buy and forget and treat public markets like private markets, mm-hmm. which such few people do. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, that's that's the same approach which uh, I fully subscribe to. Right. Wow, that's that's quite a number of books. I mean, that you that you have read. Okay, so uh, you know, Akhil, both your ventures, Decimal and Oncourse, are on a very different tangent altogether, right? Yeah. And so, if you have to tell me that, what is the one thing that you have, you know, uh, picked up from each one of them, from each of the journeys of running Decimal and uh, Oncourse, and how have they, you know, uh, evolved? your dhandoni soch what would you tell me uh very different uh on course has been a real like hands-on uh, learning experience mm-hmm. uh learn through like i said trial and error uh how to build a team how to build a product how to build uh you know the, the right kind of service uh how to make sure clients are always happy uh how to keep you know your team happy it was really like a i would say a full-fledged uh mba in a way, mm. uh, on course. Uh, Decimal has been a bit of a uh, investing lesson, sort of in that sense, uh, forcing me to sort of rethink all the things that I'm telling you, right? Like, mm. how do we invest? What's a, uh, the one thing which, as retail investors, you don't really get a chance to interact with management, but as you know, when you're on a fund, you really do get that chance, which is incredible. The mm. amount of insight that sort of gives you, right? So, just knowing what what to sort of judge from people, like knowing, uh, you know how to read between the lines uh, right. which which honestly again uh, most analysts will take all promoters on face value but you have to sort of think through a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and that comes with experience but also comes with just your intuition to some extent uh, so I think in terms of just building out a skill set I would say on course really sort of made me a much stronger entrepreneur uh, mm-hmm. and also sort of helped me build my own understanding of what sort of business I want to build, right? Like I always knew I didn't, I didn't want to run down a loss making tech venture sort of approach. Mm. And there are many times at which, you know, we sat down and had that, that thought process, Mm. but I knew I wanted to build a solid growth oriented bootstrapped company uh, that was profitable. And that would sort of, you know, we we would sort of focus on growing from ground up Mm. with, with decimal. The goal was more about uh, choosing the right businesses to invest in, finding the right investors who believed in what we were doing, mm. uh, having the right investment approach. Uh, so it was a, it's very different because, you know, with, with Decimal, there's less number of people you're working with on, on your team. Mm. Uh, it's sometimes just, you know, you on the screen. Uh, so it's a little different. Mm. Uh, and I think there's, there's different skills that you get from both, you know. Right, right. Okay. So th- this is, again, you know, uh, I would say that quite interesting the way you're managing both the things and how you've uh, induced 
the different interests and skill set while working on both of them and how you're actually applying to them so that's that's really good but if i if i really ask you what is your goal now since you're like financially stable you you're putting in investments you're getting the companies to right what where do you really look at yourself in the next 10 years so i i i don't really i i don't have the mindset of hey i've made it like i don't really think uh-huh. of it like that i i sort of have a more of a mindset of well i sort of have a little bit of a growth oriented mindset where i say hey mm-hmm. listen what more can we do how do we continue to grow how do we continue to add value um currently uh my focus is a little more on on course mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of where i am devoting attention to sort of growing out the services and Uh, like i said you know we've had a pretty explosive last year and a half so just trying to make sure that we are able to sort of you know grow and build with that as well mm-hmm. um i i think with uh with 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 decimal and with my investing in general i just sort of club those together i i just hope to become a better investor over time uh i you know i i've i keep making mistakes i keep learning from them and i hope i keep learning from them i think that's mm-hmm. my my biggest thing is uh don't don't sort of expect to never make mistakes but ex- just make sure you keep learning from them and keep mm-hmm. adapting to them uh so i want to be a better investor uh want to be a better entrepreneur i think i'm very excited about the education space mm-hmm. uh i think there's so much opportunity there i still feel in spite of the coming of the byjus and everything uh there's a lot of opportunity to sort of take this this uh, sector forward uh we will need some government help though um mm-hmm. it's it's a sector which is still stuck in the 80s and 90s uh you know in terms of curriculum if you sort of see what they still learn in school on state boards and mm-hmm. you know national boards it's pretty much the same that we learned and what our parents learned right um uh, and i i'm hoping there's sort of some shift and change in that and uh you know and it's 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 a little bit of a i'm a little uh disheartened by the gap that's sort of building now between the haves and the have nots especially within education and then obviously it compounds through life right like mm-hmm. anything else is uh, if you can afford a good private education today uh, suddenly you're on a different you know you can communicate better you can uh, think better you can analyze better versus a student you know who's forced to go to government school is is already five steps behind right so right. it's bad it's bad enough that they uh, uh, monetarily couldn't have uh, are behind but now they're even educationally behind so how mm-hmm. will they ever catch up Uh, so it's education has has historically always been the greatest equalizer right I, i i really hope in india we can sort of think of it from that perspective and we really need government help for that mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i'm excited to sort of be part of a sector that i think can can basically change lives uh, in a way okay okay since we're talking about education and i'm really glad that you've talked about you've mentioned actually uh the government help that we need so i would want to know your opinion about you know uh, about the indian edu- education system because you see the indian education system doesn't really garner the entrepreneurial mindset what it garners is that you need to get good grades and then get into a 9 to 5 make good paycheck and then live your life that's what every education system technique garners but especially the indian ones right uh, so what is what is your opinion about this that how do you think so the system is you know is not garnering this thing i mean i think i think first and foremost uh, i got to tell you i'm a product of the indian education system and i assume you are too yeah uh, so it, i think some of us still able to sort of get through it Uh, right. in spite of our education not because of it and i think that's something to just keep in mind is how do we use education as a tool to really grow personally and professionally right 
Mm-hmm. And I think what's 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 happening is there's a real key focus right now in education on testing, and with on with testing, the key focus is on memorization and less mm-hmm. on uh, real analysis. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think what's what's happening is that's forcing us to become robots. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we we become robots to grade twelve, then we get get into JE or NEET or whatever that is. Uh, we we again become robots to prepare for it. Then we go to our IITs or you know. Bitspilani or whatever we're going we're off to and we hmm. again become robots to do well so we can get a job and then we go to our job and we're robots hmm. and we can't perform well in our job suddenly and hmm. and suddenly we realize that oh god like there's so many other things I need to perform here other than just the same robotic sort of uh, you know things that I've been taught for all these years hmm. uh, so I think there's a real disconnect between our education system and the real world hmm. and and part of that comes from very early age, uh, focus on memorization and less on analysis and a very, you know, uh, I would say one dimensional approach to sort of building a personality that's just focused on, you know, books and less focused on, uh, you know, softer skills like, you know, leadership skills or communication skills or, or EQ, right? Like your emotional quotient, like your ability to sort of uh, depict what someone's really talking about. I think, I think that you know, uh, we are really behind on stuff like that. Financial literacy, we're so behind on. Hmm. Uh, you know, of course, we've all caught on to the fact that we all need to code, uh, but but coding by itself is isn't the goal. The goal is, hey, why are we coding? Like, what are we coding for? Like, it's to it's to build something. So, hmm. uh, can we can we actually incorporate that into us into our curriculum now? Hmm. And, you know, do we really need government intervention every time we want to change the curriculum? Like, I, I, I think there's so many questions that need to be answered here. Uh, and if, if I really look at the preschool level, right, because, I, again, I have a young kid, so I have, I have access to it, where they're, right. they're, they're not regulated at all. Mm-hmm. The kind of things that they're doing at preschool and nursery right now is insane. It's amazing. Like They're doing, like, you know, they're, they're forcing kids to really analyze think uh they're using all kinds of systems to uh you know which i again i don't think they were using this back then but right which, which work really well so what it shows you is if you allow the private sector free mm-hmm. uh of of this approach of uh hey you have to sort of follow my curriculum it's it's pretty amazing the kind of things that uh you know that the kind of approaches kids can take right 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 so, I mean, that, that, that really shows that how many and what a varied kind of perspective that you have. And probably, you know, that would call for another session for us to sit down and really discuss everything in details as to how we can, you know, mend this education system so that the mindset really evolves. Right. So uh, that's something we'll definitely discuss more about. But I, I guess we're on the same page that the, uh, the education system overall, it does call for a change. Uh, wherein things change for the better and better mindsets are incorporated and we are not, you know, three idiots ki bhaasha mein gadhe manufacture nahi hota hai. <laughs> but, but that's really what, what's happening, no? Like we're just building robot after robot, donkey after donkey. And, right. and listen, smart robot, smart donkey, right? I'm not saying right. anything about how academically smart these guys are. We're building... Right. So, which is why, you know, we have some of the the best back-end software companies in the world mm-hmm. where they just have to be told what to do and they go out and build it. Right. So they can, they, we have the best software service businesses, but we can never build our own product businesses. 
a facebook doesn't come out of india right, right. but but an infosys comes out of india and and that is it's a it's actually a, it's more related to the kind of talent we have here Mm-hmm. Uh, and the approach we have it's the copycat mindset then it then it is to have original thinking right mm-hmm. how do you develop original thinking unless you started at an early age right 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 absolutely okay before we really now step into your journey akhil and talk about your mindset the way it was made up there's one thing that you have been talking about quite a few times is about the fomo that you have had okay and uh, and you don't want to have the fomo of miss uh, now be it with companies or anything so i want to understand is has there been an experience in your life where you have actually missed out on something big and that you kind of regret or think about it that you know or probably has taught you a lesson so i want to know that experience i mean i, I it's innumerable if you think about it from an investment perspective i can i can name maybe 30 or 40 investments the i the biggest should... one like when i said uh... this question the one which actually came first in your mind uh there's a lot um i mean if i if i think about it i uh and this one i regret a lot i i uh-huh. you know i had bought bajaj finance at 150 rupees uh, as a stock uh, many years ago right only to sell it at 1000 rupees thinking hey you know i've done so well for myself and i tell you this is this is something you really learn right uh, and you know today the stock sits at 6000 it's uh, <laughs> so it's it's what, what i i think the, the that mindset of you know just not constantly thinking about hey i'm going to lose my gains uh-huh. um needs to sort of shift away and i think that you know being a private equity investor has really helped me with that because see, in private equity you don't have an uh, see my uh, company of mine can be up 4x or 5x but i can't mm-hmm. get out i'm i'm stuck right until i get the opportunity to get out Hmm. and sometimes it's a blessing because that 5x can easily become 20x hmm. um but if i was you know in the public markets with 5x you start thinking like 10 times like oh you know is this good uh is it worth and and that's made me a better public markets investor saying if i believe in this company i think it's going to grow hmm. i believe in the management why the hell should i be selling it and and that that was the wrong mistake i made and i've done that with so many companies you know i i hmm. can't tell you it's innumerable uh and that's part of the whole learning process for me is is you know uh learn to ride your winners and don't to cut your losers uh, okay. and i'll tell you flip side i've also sat on companies uh because they were down 30% meaning oh they'll catch up only for them to go down 50% oh wow. uh and then listen i i i'm i'm okay with that but the the, the thing is i i did, there's no reason i should have lost uh, more money on a on a losing trade anyway mm-hmm. okay that's fair enough okay so now let's let's talk about your journey akhil we have, we have learned a lot about your business your investor mindset now i want want you to tell me everything about your journey from the very starting point till the point you started on course vantage oh till the point i started on course okay uh so i went to school in bombay i uh, i wouldn't say i was like a like a uh, you know like top student i was uh, definitely not at the bottom i was you know mm. somewhere in between uh, got better over time and you know uh, it was always a bit of a last minute study uh, uh, studies were not like something but i i had a fear of you know doing badly always so mm. uh, when when the time came to it i did i did sort of get down to it and mm. you know still somehow managed to get decent enough grades to sort of get through uh, uh, so in that sense like i was i guess forced i kind of forced myself to uh 
become a good last minute study which i think a lot of people sort of get into mm-hmm. uh, and that i guess that you know in a way that sort of helps you deal with pressure because there's no pressure like an indian board uh, indian you know school exam mm-hmm. where you know and and i got to tell you my parents put no pressure on me uh, they were really good about it it was all internal right like mm-hmm. you sort of see your friends stressing out you sort of see how big the teachers make it and it's a really special experience to to you know grow up in india and have to give school exams at the age of 9 and 10 uh, so i really enjoyed that that was always fun um, but you know i think that sort of learned early on forced me to deal with that sort of pressure mm-hmm. uh, i got into sports uh, you know i guess from the age of 12 13 i was originally a tennis player uh, played at a state level and then mm-hmm. i uh, you know played football for school uh, and then you know I guess in college I I I started playing squash and then I became a national level squash player. Wow. Uh and and that sort of uh had a real key uh, focus on my uh, and that mindset of sort of being an athlete also really helps me. Mm-hmm. Um in sort of everything I do it's just sort of you know that because it, when you're an athlete you're sort of forced to really go through pain you're really forced to you know the amount of work that's required. uh to perfect a shot to sort of get a perfect movement mm-hmm. uh, it, it really focuses it makes you focus on all the subtleties mm-hmm. and it makes you appreciate the amount of hard work but it also tells you that hey listen nothing happens overnight right like people mm-hmm. look at the best athletes and they say hey he's just all talent but like no there's that's like decades of hard work which mm-hmm. just showcases his talent today you know and and i think that even with the businesses that we run we have that mindset of hey mm-hmm. listen we're putting in all that work and we will reap the reap the rewards and obviously that's that that has happened to some extent and it will continue to happen because we have that athlete mentality both me and my wife and my mm-hmm. wife in fact is a far more accomplished athlete than i was uh, she was a five time national junior champion in squash uh, wow. which you know i could only dream of but like so she she's been like super accomplished so we have both have that mindset uh, you know uh, mm-hmm. in that sense and that 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 obviously helped and then um, i think uh, so beyond that uh, you know and beyond that sort of athlete slash winner mindset that we sort of came in with mm-hmm. uh, i think we also sort of have this uh, you know this mindset of making sure that whatever we do we give 100% to um so i'm i'm not going to like die you know wondering right like i i want to know that i gave something 100% and that i i gave it everything i had and then if i fail i fail and then that approach i have to pretty much any product or mm-hmm. pretty much anything uh that i do uh, but i also know when it's time to sort of step away from something uh, and that and that is also been a crucial learning is sort of been like mm-hmm. learning like when is a loss a loss you know right okay and that yeah and that's yeah. i think that's that's like partly uh, as valid in business as it is, is an investment so like you start a you start a product it's not doing well many people will keep holding on mm-hmm. uh you know for years and years and they'll just say okay you know it's okay i'll keep investing behind it mm-hmm. the earlier you take a call uh, the quicker you take a call the better you feel and uh the more likely you are to succeed in in life i think that making quick decisions has been super important for us mm. okay okay i get that and uh, so this this is till till the uh, athletic part what about the college where did you go to college what was what was it that you studied and did you do a post right tell me about everything 
Yeah, okay. So I so I went to college in Chicago uh, at a uh, university called Northwestern. Okay. Uh, and you know, I studied economics. Uh, I was part of the squash team like I told you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, for me economics was it wasn't something that, you know, uh, I really was dying to study, but mm-hmm. at that point I I you know, had sort of a mindset of, hey, I want to go into finance. I'd spoken to a lot of seniors and they said, you know, if you're going into finance, don't, don't, don't go into business, go into economics. It makes more sense. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I didn't love economics in school. You know, the way they teach it in, in India, it's, it's not the best. Mm-hmm. But I went to college and I just sort of started liking the subject a lot more. It was quantitative. It told the story. There were graphs behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so I really enjoyed that. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed like my financial markets classes. I loved my behavior. So behavioral like uh, psychology, which was behavioral economics, uh, mm-hmm. was super interesting to me, right? Like just forcing me to start thinking about um, the class I took was like forcing you to think about like why we make the decisions we make, right? Like why do mm-hmm. people prefer two twenty rupee gifts versus one forty rupee gift, or you know uh, how irrational human beings are with their <laughs> with their thinking, right? And mm-hmm. and actually, you know, years later when we sort of sat into pricing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it all sort of came back to me and it started making sense, you know, in terms of uh, some of the things we learn over there. But see, I, I also studied liberal arts, right, which is part right. of uh, how the U.S. system is. And, you know, mm. besides studying economics, you're also kind of forced to take a whole host of other classes. Mm. So I studied some astronomy, which I found super fascinating. I studied wow. some history, which was really amazing. Like I learned a lot about uh, things like the Holocaust and things which, you know, mm. honestly, we don't cover in enough detail in Indian, uh, in India. So... I, I feel like that really opened my mind. Uh, I took some philosophy classes, which were, uh, again, it forces you to think in a different manner. Like, you know, it forces you to actually think, really step back and think. So, you know, in the US, like the the kind of approach to education that I got mm-hmm. in those four years, I, mm-hmm. I would say that was kind of transformed, you know, it just transformed my thinking totally from the way I went in. I went in, I was ready to be a robot. I was ready to be a donkey. Mm-hmm. And I came out like, able to think for myself you know and and that really i would say helps okay you know, what what yeah i get i completely get what you mean here but i you know what i would want to know that what made you decide that you want to go to us for your ug not study in india uh i honestly like you know uh as silly as it sounds at that point uh I I was graduating from school. Uh, I was, you know, coming out of the 12th standard and people around me were looking to go abroad. I mm-hmm. sort of followed the herd a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'll be honest. I, I didn't have too much uh, anyone pushing me or anything. It was more like, listen, this looks like an opportunity. So we, so I actually went to a counselor at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who basically, you know, told me, hey, if you want to do it, this, this is the sort of college you should look at. This is the approach you take. My parents were always supportive. Uh, but they were not overly involved parents. So, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of left it to me. Decide what you want to do. We'll support you no matter what. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think at that point, uh, I I just, I'll, I'll be honest, it was a bit of luck. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I don't think I had a concrete plan in mind that, hey, I want to go abroad because it's a much better education. And, you know, at that point, you didn't know that much. Right. Uh, at, at that stage, you know, uh, we hadn't evolved so much in terms of information to really know that, hey, what kind of education is it? 
Mm. I just knew that people went abroad, they got good jobs. Uh, there was a chance to make a good life for yourself over there, mm. and I, I wanted that for myself. And then that was about it. It wasn't. It wasn't so much that hey, uh, stay back and go for your post grad or you know. Uh, and I, I guess I'm. I, I think I have to sort of thank my parents for part of that, right? Just mm. being supportive enough to say, hey, listen, whatever you want to do, we'll back you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, from. For after your twelfth, you went to Chicago for for four years or three four years? years yeah. four, four years, four years. Uh, did you get a job or did you just come back? So, like I said, I spent my summers interning there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a job in hand at a fund in Minnesota, actually, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I actually let that one go uh, to come back and uh, to, like I said, I came back with the idea of getting into business and just sort of ended up getting into on course right away. Okay. Uh, so it sort of and i never really got a chance to go back for a postgrad i was always one of the not regrets i won't say regret because frankly like i told you like this has been like real life mba for me but mm-hmm. uh, one of the, the thoughts i always had was hey am i missing out on something and mm-hmm. in fact i had some you know older people who told me that hey you listen you know an mba will really complete your your education or will really give you that rounding and mm-hmm. may help you in your future and I just never got the time to even mm-hmm. look into it. Uh, and, and the funniest thing is in 2009, before I graduated, I had even taken my GMAT right. uh, with the whole mentality of, you know, applying to some business schools and things, but I never used it. Uh, so allowed it to expire and everything and just, you know, okay. uh, totally, totally missed out on the postgrad boat. And uh-huh. it's kind of ironic, right? We run a company which sends kids abroad to postgrad, <laughs> but the founders haven't done their postgrads themselves. Uh, oh, oh my god so that means alicia also just did ug from howard and that's it that's it my god you guys are high education really good schools oh yeah god. but but i i guess so so highly educated in the sense uh we went to good schools but we never really went beyond a certain level of education <laughs> okay okay so you had the job you left it now tell me uh what really kicked inside you that you came back deciding that you want to start something so i don't know i mean so so frankly uh, i got to tell you right like so up, up until that point so the job search was pretty frustrating to be honest it right. sort of demotivated me pretty badly uh, yeah. you get you get a lot of rejections hmm. uh, and i have to tell you right like at that point i had offers in hand which got turned away because uh a lot of those banks were not able to hire international students because they had taken government money after mm. the crisis at 2008 2009 was a terrible time right and yeah, that's the that time we were a, basically right that's when we were sort of looking for full time jobs and you know uh to go through that whole process uh without and finally and of course i did land a good job by the end of it mm. um but it sort of it just left me a little demotivated about the us in general mm-hmm. and about you know how i wanted to sort of see my life and i i definitely saw myself more from a perspective of eventually getting into business so it was a question of do i want to do it now or do i want to sort of wait it out do a few years here and then come mm-hmm. back and then try to get into business and then i just decided that hey you know uh you I could I could be working in this job right now and 6 months later I'll get fired anyway because that's how bad things were at that point. Okay. So it's better off to just look at it and sort of jump in right now mm. and see what we can build. And and honestly like I said I had no plan coming right. back. I had zero plans. Uh I you know uh 
my dad is into business and he he said hey you can join me but i didn't really want to do that either mm-hmm. uh and i i sort of wanted to sort of carve out my own path i always mm-hmm. sort of had that fiercely independent mindset uh mm-hmm. from my parents but uh, you know i think that sort of also uh it sort of just becomes destiny then right beyond a point right right okay so this was actually we were supposed to our next question but i i do think so with what dance is going to be like still i'll ask you now i want you to tell me like where do you really see the seeds of business sown into you yeah i mean so uh so i think the obvious one is from you know uh, the fact that i grew up in a in a business family it, mm-hmm. it sort of gets sown in quite early mm-hmm. and you know without us really thinking about it right like mm-hmm. you start uh the conversation is always around business mm-hmm. uh when families meet uh it's uh you know the, the the you're always encouraged to sort of uh you're always shown examples around you of people who've you know uh been successful through business mm-hmm. so you really don't see any other way right like you start thinking that hey this is this is the only way of life mm-hmm. um and and obviously you know uh, this is this is from a very young age and then you know as you get um older uh, you you start seeing the other side of it right i i started seeing uh, seniors and you know uh, other influencers who did really well being really you know well paid professionals and and i said you know like there is two sides to this and and that's when i went with the mindset of um of i need to keep an open mind to this when i went to college and uh although as i sort of started you know Hmm. even through my teenage years and even into my early 20s that it never really changed that hey i eventually think real uh, wealth can can solely and only be created through business uh, hmm. and then that and that that mindset sort of never really shifted uh, no matter what mm-hmm. okay okay so uh, before i actually dive into my other questions but since you've mentioned it i want to know your your mindset your thought process and your 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 thinking about the whole thing around wealth about creating wealth uh, about generating wealth using business and you know uh, not being able to actually generate wealth when you are doing when you're in a job right a good good wealth it's not about the paycheck it's about wealth so what is your whole process around the wealth what do you think about generational wealth So so first and foremost I don't believe that you can't generate wealth if you're on a job. I I know plenty of people who mm-hmm. you know work in finance or tech companies and stuff who are going to be plenty wealthy, right? And right. probably far wealthier than most business people will ever be. Right. Um so I I first and foremost think that uh, mindset has has got to shift. Okay. Um but I I I would say if you sort of see uh just historically, right? Mm-hmm. Um majority of the wealth does stay concentrated towards the ownership hmm. part of it right hmm. so so especially if 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 and when companies get listed or if and when companies get sold um employees make some money but owners make all the money right uh, and and even the old, older school businesses where we're not talking about buying and selling companies but we're just talking about hey uh, money coming in money going out uh, the employees may never get as well paid as the owners right because the hmm. owners take they essentially take that risk right of starting the business so they invariably get paid more so that reward risk ratio is always favorable to them uh, but of course it also means they like they could have failed businesses and not make any money mm-hmm. uh, and and because of that giving up that security they get to earn a lot more um if and when their ventures do well uh, mm-hmm. and i think that 
is sort of how one views this, uh, uh, you know, aspect of wealth is uh, it's it's really a high risk, high reward sort of game. Uh, and it's frankly, the, uh, and it's a game if you want to play. And, and I think now it's becoming more acceptable, uh, even into middle class families, right? Where you're seeing like parents saying, hey, listen, if you don't want to, uh, you know, you want to start a, jo- start a company because they're seeing enough examples. And I think the real key thing is, mm. if you see, right, like in India before, uh, there was no new wealth. It was, you know, you had the Ambani's and the uh, Tata's and you had a lot of staid, old-fashioned sort of right. businesses. And, you know, uh, the approach was always like, uh, this is your only example of wealth in this country, hmm. right? Now you're suddenly seeing the, the Mukesh Bansals and the, you know, the, the, you know, the Flipkart, uh, the Flipkart guys, of course, the, uh, the Zomato guys, hmm. And, and you're starting to see that these are guys who like 15 years ago didn't have much wealth and now they're, you know, they've done so well for themselves. So suddenly, it doesn't just change the mindset of the pe- people who are newly coming into into business, uh, but it also changes the, their support system mindset, right? So like your parents suddenly don't mind you doing this. Right. Uh, and, and I think that that really, really helps. And I think that's going to change the way... Uh, the next 10 or 15 years are shaped because there's so many good examples now of people uh, who started businesses, who've been so successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean like uh, mm. successful to have a decent life. But I'm saying successful, like with even with global standards in mind, right? Like right. these are guys who've, who've made billions in a matter of a decade mm. uh, out of nothing, right? Mm. Uh, and that is pretty amazing. That's pretty incredible. And that sets the tone. And of course, listen, for, for every person like that, there's... 20 people, 30 people who failed. Mm. Uh, maybe maybe the ratio is even more. Mm. But um, it just opens up the door for more risk takers in the economy. And it sort of just comes back to the whole rising tide part we spoke about earlier, right? Like right. you have more risk takers, you have more of a growth mindset. It mm. just helps everyone. Right. Okay. That's that's a great point of view that I get to learn from you. So now, uh, Akhil, why don't you tell me, like, uh, what were your early days like? Like when you were in school, when you were really, really small. The early days, probably when you remember something from five years, four years. What was it like at your family? How were you treated? I mean, the family talks, the business talks really happened. But what do you remember? That Was it also like with you that, you know, your dad would take you to the business? Like, you know... Uh, they will take it to office and stuff like that. What was it like? So, uh, I mean, it was it was partly like that. Uh, father's an exporter, so you know his office was kind of dull. Mm. Uh, to be honest, like it was just uh, you know a lot of paperwork and and my my view was like, oh man, if I have to go in an office like that, like I don't really have fun. As a kid, as a four year old, five year old, you go to an office just full of paperwork. It's not really that much fun, you know. Right. Uh, I used to spend my summers in Chennai. My uh, you know my my mom's uh, family's from there mm-hmm. and they were into textiles and they have like a retail shop over there. And I, I, I used to have like a lot of fun going to there okay. as far as what I remember. Uh, but yeah, you know, as an early, as a kid, I was always, a, I guess, a uh, curious kid. I would sort of start side businesses, uh, mostly to sell things to my family mm. uh, and make pocket money. Mm. And, my, and my parents would always be so proud of me when I did stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, me and my sister were always encouraged to sort of think like that a little bit. Uh, in, in, I'll tell you, in school, I was actually really bright. Uh, and I don't sort of 
uh, I hate sort of tooting my own horn, but like, yeah, I was sort of uh, bright very early on. Like, mm. uh, math came very naturally to me. Uh, wow. It was something which was just, uh, which I really loved from a very, very early age. Mm. Um, again, I feel like that's partly because of my uh, dad and his family and sort of how they are so mm. good with numbers when they speak. Right. Uh, that it just sort of like sticks with you uh, growing up. So I think that that part really sort of stuck with us, uh, with both me and my sister. But uh, yeah, it was it was a uh, I would I wouldn't say an out of the ordinary sort of childhood, but definitely a lot of influences to business, uh, mm. you know, uh, and numbers particularly, which mm. just sort of kept kept coming up, you know. Okay, that's great. So now that we know that your your maternal side is majorly from Chennai and the retail business out there, and your paternal side, and basically your father has the export business from Bombay itself, right? From Bombay itself, right? Yeah, from yeah. Bombay. Itself. So from Bombay itself. So now you're the one who's there. So if I if if I have to talk about how did it really shape your mindset? What did you pick up from your mom's side, and what did you pick up from your dad's side? Right. To be precise, if I have to ask you and force you to think about it, because these are two different business altogether. Having a shop is a different business because we know the kind of, you know, the textile business that happens in Chennai and stuff and Mumbai being Mumbai because of the sports and everything, the export business. These are two different tangents. How did it really shape your mindset? What did you learn? So, I mean... Uh very different things I think uh, and that was obviously early days I think mm. as I grew older I spent less time in Chennai so naturally my influence was more from my father's side than my mother's mm. side mm. it just sort of naturally happened uh, um, I think one of the things I learned very early on uh, my father kept sort of digging in is just the value of building a brand okay. um, and, and brand uh, he kept saying like you know a brand is pretty much everything uh, I never really understood it, of course, you know, later on in life when you sort of deal, see how Apple does it and stuff, you start realizing the value of it. Because mm-hmm. he, he was he sort of would export uh, uh, agricultural equipment into into uh, West Africa, okay. into Nigeria, into Ghana, you know. And and he uh, obviously had suppliers from all over the country and which from whom we had good relationships. And mm-hmm. uh, he kept he always spoke about how he built a brand from scratch. Mm. Uh, and and then and then on, honestly the dividend that came was because of that brand mm. and less about the product um, and you see that all around you right like it's you pay for a Havels brand you pay for a you know uh, a, you pay for a Nike logo you don't mm. really pay for the product no. um, and I, I you start understanding that and you know even with uh, on course that kind of sort of stuck in is like listen they're paying to work with with on course they're not uh, just paying for college so I think that the value of what your brand stands for that mm-hmm. that sort of stuck with me for a long time mm-hmm. uh, and I think uh, that was really good learning from him uh, and from his business I think the other thing I sort of uh, understood quite like you know early on is the value of those relationships mm-hmm. um, I you know again I feel like while you, you you sort of imbibe that you only once you get into it you sort of start mm-hmm. seeing it more and more mm-hmm. like you know, he's he's worked with the same suppliers for, for 25, 30 years. Uh, today, you know, every time the supplier wants to get into a new business, he'll always give my father the first call to see if he wants to be involved. It's just mm-hmm. that relationship is, you know, they, they, they come to our our weddings, we go to their uh, family weddings. It's it's beyond just business, right? right. And that's the thing. Like, so business is, is done between people. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's... 
it's i think there's a there's a human face to business and that's super important uh, which people sort of need to realize is is the idea of being a ruthless like businessman is 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 long gone hmm. and unless you are sort of in the enter a business uh, with the mindset of making sure that everyone wins hmm. and it doesn't have to have this mentality of okay uh, if i win you lose hmm. we we both can win and we got to find the we got to find the way to make sure we both win right? right and if if you start thinking like that and you start forcing yourself to think like that like you start thinking about okay how do i do this uh, next thing in a way that you know we it's 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 beneficial to all parties involved hmm. i think with that mindset it really forces you to uh, to build a strong sustainable business right. as opposed to a fly by night business hmm i get it that's 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 amazing so listeners i mean you know this is something that i personally follow in my business when or whenever i'm thinking of strategies that or if i'm thinking of partnership is that everyone needs to win because every business needs to add value and be it long run short term whatever it is until and unless you add value people wouldn't want to do business with you see transaction is one thing but both of the places winning and being happy is another thing having a happy face at the end of a transaction would mean a lot to you more than having just the transaction so it's 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 more about value right so akil anything that you want to add to this oh not really i feel like i we've covered so much ground uh, <laughs> in this podcast like i feel like you've sort of run through my childhood my dreams my future my present everything okay okay but is this still that i want to learn more about so you mentioned that you did some of the couple of businesses right uh, you sold stuff to families and all all the things so what was the what were those businesses and what were you what was the age when you did those oh i don't remember uh <laughs> i remember making gift cards um, okay when i was a kid uh which were really bad and you know my granddad and everyone bought them to make sure that i felt happy <laughs> which i which i now know in hindsight uh, at the time i felt very happy uh, right. but yeah stuff like that you know like really small things uh nothing that i can point to and say hey that was like life changing for me but i like i'm saying it was just like seeds being sown uh, hmm. very early on so did it teach um, you anything like even this these small uh, small gestures small businesses whatever it was but did it teach you something if i if you really course, have to what it 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 well, it just taught me that you know uh that you know you got to keep finding ways to uh, to create value and so i'll, I'll tell you like i had a younger cousin who was hmm. from canada Mm-hmm. and you know he would come down uh, and he was like 6 7 years old he would mm-hmm. force his mom to take him to uh, you know uh, some of uh, you know fashion street or kolaba causeway and you know you get you have the roadside sort of uh, sellers and he would right. buy some of these like you know fake branded watches and take it back and sell it to his friends mm-hmm. and you know and he would sell it at higher prices and i would just be like wow this kid is like doing amazing things <laughs> um and you know this is this is and, and obviously everyone in the family was like quite proud of him and I, i would sort of look and be like that's that's it's pretty amazing that he's doing that and so i'm saying like that's the sort of stuff that was encouraged in our family that you know uh, keep keep finding ways to add value keep finding yeah. ways of hey keep thinking about so so money wasn't a bad topic in our in our family it was mm. a topic we were forced to think about <laughs> on a on a daily basis about yeah, like yeah. hey uh how do you make it right like so so it's it's and I, and see this is what i feel like uh because and i now have so many friends who sort of grew up in professional families who they didn't have this thinking right mm. they were they were sort of there was more focus on grades more focus on education because 
for, for their parents, that's what had got them, you know, through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that, you know, uh, that that's okay because, but I feel somewhere in school or some sort of approach needs to be done where all kids start getting this kind of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, forcing you to think about money in a very... Uh, in a very neutral manner, right? Without it being good or bad. It's just, you know, it's at the end of it, a tool to sort of live your life. Hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So, Akhil, we've got, we've covered your initial days. We've, we've talked about your, you know, basic business that you did. You've talked about many other stuff from the schooling. Now, you've got gone to Chicago. Okay. So, Chicago, when you went to Chicago, did you take up a loan or something or did your dad take care of it? How did it work? So I, I honestly didn't take a loan. And I, I have to tell you, like uh, mm. like I said, I'm, I'm really thankful for my, uh, you know, uh, family being mm. uh, in the position they were that they could support me and my you know sister for all our educational dreams, mm. which I, I do realize is a privilege uh, now in hindsight, more, more so right. uh, especially when I'm dealing with families, right? Um, but no, we did, I, they did, didn't take up a loan. Uh, okay. And, and, and honestly, you know, uh, at the time, I didn't appreciate it as, as much because, like I said, there were people around me who were going. So I just felt like, oh, it's a natural thing. But now in hindsight, it's, it's pretty incredible that you know, mm. they supported me through that. Right. Okay. So now that you went to Chicago, you were in a whole lot of different culture from Bombay. See, now what I really want to learn from you is that Bombay, for many of us, even in India, is a different city altogether. It's a city of dreams. It's a city wherein your ceilings break on a, a lot of levels. But you went from Bombay to Chicago. So what were the difference in cultures and mindset that evolved and that you saw and that came up in your personality with that? Huh, it's a different world. I mean, see, the thing is, you, university abroad, so I went to Northwestern, mm-hmm. which is as it is, got so many different nationalities who come there. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, you have Koreans, you have Chinese, you have, but of course, predominantly American, as, as one would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, my roommate was from Chicago itself. Uh, okay. It's pretty interesting, like purebred American. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like, I, I think like that mixing of cultures really like gives you perspective. Mm-hmm. Like on my squash team, I had uh, two Koreans. I had, uh, um, you know, another Indian. A uh, lot of uh, Americans fresh out of prep school. Uh, so you get like a real mix of cultures, you know, like which also shows you like everyone's worldview is so different, right? And even within America, right? You have yeah. had a, a friend, you know, who is uh, Asian American with a very different upbringing than you know my friend who's. Uh, who is white and from Chicago and then my other friend who's, you know, white and from California with a different sort of, you know, political view on life. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think like, I think just meeting different people from different cultures, uh, forcing you to sort of interact. And, and remember, like one thing is when you go abroad, you're always the outsider, right? Okay. Which you're not in India, right? Like in mm-hmm. India, you're, like, this is your home. This is sort of where you belong. Like, for the first time, you really go and you feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, which isn't the best feeling, but what it forces you to do is you have to step out of your shell. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of make friends. You have to sort of, you know, uh, be comfortable with the tag of being an outsider. Which is, you know, I'll tell you what, that's it's a pretty amazing thing because mm-hmm. uh, it, it really sort of pushes you to sort of think in a different manner. Like, you, you can't, what would you say doesn't it, it, you know your worldview isn't just the four walls of your house anymore or the, or the you know the 
or the walls of your city anymore. It's it's mm-hmm. essentially it has to evolve with with everyone around you. Right, right. So so what what really more happened? I mean, there were four years that you lived. What all changes did it come to your personality in terms of how uh, like did you work there apart from internship? Did you do pick up some odd time jobs or what was it like? I can I want to learn more about it. So I mean, uh, so so Northwestern is on the quarter system, mm. uh, which basically means you have three quarters of uh, studies. Right. Uh, the fourth quarter is summer, which is a break. So the the three quarters of studies is pretty intense because most other colleges are on semester systems, which means mm. they have two terms. So we had three terms, which automatically meant that, you know, forced us to, uh, so we had to take like fresh classes every quarter. Mm. We had fresh sets of midterms, fresh sets of exams. Uh, it was pretty intense. Now that I think about it, like every mm. two weeks, you're, you're sort of sitting for exams again. Mm. Um, I think that really helped. And side by side, you're also traveling for squash and competing side by side. And you're sort of forced to balance that with this side of your life. Mm. Um and, you know, through that whole point, you also want to try to make sure you have the best time of your life, right? Like, because this is it was very clear to us and after this, because, you know, you get into college and from year one, everyone's thinking about where, where they're going to get a job. Right. Uh, so, so your mindset in college is always, like, pretty much all through your education is always thinking forward, right? So sometimes mm-hmm. you kind of forget about enjoying yourself in the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a really probably great experience. Uh, and I, I would sort of say the the softer benefits of it far outweigh the the harder benefits. Um, like you know, today I have friends in, like all over the world. Uh, you know, I'm not as good at keeping in touch as I was, but like you know, many times you just pick up the phone and call someone, and you know, mm-hmm. it's the same as it was before. <laughs> um, and I think that's pretty amazing. Like it's it's it really sort of uh, it it does give you a more global perspective on things mm-hmm. uh, versus, you know, if I was just going to stay back and study here, I feel like you, you sort of build a more, uh, not one dimensional, but a, a, a more like uh, monochromatic sort of view of life. Okay. Okay. So, so that means you had a fun filled UG when you were busy studying and balancing it with squash and playing around and all the stuff. Yes, totally. 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 Yeah, I mean, we had a had a really had a blast to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, mm. I mean, there were a lot of like hard nights studying. There were a lot of hard nights partying. There mm. were a lot of uh, you know hard summers interning. Uh, you know, spent my twenty first birthday working at you know in in office during my internship at 12 a.m. So yeah. I really like it had it all, you know, in that sense, like really good mixture. And I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Right. Uh, sometimes do regret. I wish, I wish I'd stayed back for a few years before I came back. Right. But you know, in, in hindsight, if I had sort of started this business two years later, I probably wouldn't have, I probably would have done something else. And you mm. know, I don't know where I would have been. So there's a lot of like, you know, uh, thing about timing also that happens. Okay. I get it. So, now that we have covered, I guess, your complete journey from the starting point to the college school and finally to the business from the point exactly where we started. So now we can, you know, actually link all the dots that you you come from a family business background where your seeds got sown. Then you did your school where you were a bright child and you did the couple of business in between. Then you went to college, you had time there and then you came back and all of these things happened. So 
now if i have to you know take this all together and you know put this into a uh, let's say a one word or let's say a one statement or one learning that you would i would say that has made you an entrepreneur right and what is the biggest learning that you have got from this whole journey what would that be i would say just don't don't die wondering right like just if if you have a thought if you have an idea mm-hmm. like jump into it uh don't hold back like that, that would be my honest uh i guess three or four words to to anyone like you know who I, and i i got to tell you like i whenever i meet anyone who's uh who's yeah. looking to start something or thinking about it and they're wondering i'm always i always tell them like you know you're never going to get a better time and it only gets harder and harder as you get older so right uh really you have an idea and and honestly if you ask me mm-hmm. things are far easier today than they were like 10 11 years ago right. uh, to just start something because you know uh you 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 have really great role models not just abroad but in india right now who mm-hmm. who are doing some amazing things mm-hmm. uh and you have an amazing venture capital ecosystem who are willing to sort of fund those ideas mm-hmm. uh you have a, a a pretty robust uh you know uh, i would say support system now where like i'm saying parents mindsets have sort of changed also right it's 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 just probably never been a better time in india to start a business than absolutely right now okay that's that's perfect so now that we have the everything in place as of now the all the puzzle pieces are in place if i ask you now akhil what is the biggest hurdle what is the biggest struggle that you faced where you tipped really bad or which was the biggest thing to get over be it decimal be it on course what would that be uh i think i think from an entrepreneur's point of view mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, like i said fail like a really bad partnership can really derail you right uh so, so make sure you pick your partners really well uh, i think i think that is for me the biggest learning one of the biggest learnings i've made right uh, in my in my career till now for sure and i you know we plan to apply that now throughout my life mm-hmm. uh and and i think especially when you would plan to mix uh, friendship and uh, partnerships you really particularly need to be even more careful um so so and i've seen this even with family businesses right mm-hmm. uh, it's very important to put relationships far over business mm-hmm. uh because you know i mean you you sort of need to weigh out and if if you're someone who's unable to separate the two it's best not to mix them hmm. uh that that's one like super important learning i would sort of tell everyone is when thinking of picking a partner keep that in mind mm-hmm. um i would also say like you know in general uh don't sort of follow the crowd um like you know when when we sort of started our education journey there was no one doing what we did uh now they've sort of followed us you know mm-hmm. uh there were there were counselors there was hardly any education consulting companies and the right. few that existed uh followed a, quite a different model than what we what we were following right. um you know but but don't be afraid about it right we had people who initially came in and said hey you graduated from these schools and this is what you're doing and we sort of took it with a pinch of salt and just moved on right like don't hmm. don't necessarily let the crowd sway what you do like you you decide what you want to do you know uh and and you know it, it'll it'll pay dividends for sure in fact the, the, i would say following going against the crowd will pay mm-hmm. you far more than going with the crowd right 
Okay. Next thing that I want to know is, has there been any experience in your entire journey, be it from investing? Because I'm I'm pretty sure that you would be having a lot of investment stories. Any any investment story or any entrepreneurial story where you went through a moment that changed you completely? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, so there was a moment uh, a while ago, you know, uh, in, the, in, in the investment space where, where one was uh, a little over leveraged. Uh, and, and that came back to my first point in investing, which I told you, right? like not, right. To, not to over leverage. But I'm obviously telling you that because I've been through it the hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I sort of had to uh, really buckle down uh, and take my losses, move on and realize the mistake in what I had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the, the biggest learning I took from that was not to try to get rich quickly uh, mm-hmm. because I, I don't think fundamentally uh, anyone who tries to get rich quickly it really works. I, I think the, the only sustainable way is, 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 you know, following the process and following the slow, long-winded yellow brick road, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyone who's looking for a shortcut is, is really in for trouble. And I, and that, I learned that the absolute hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, overleveraged, uh, you know, used futures and options, uh, which didn't work out so well, took big losses, uh, Moved on uh, and definitely bounced back strongly from there. Right. But that that's going to stay with me for a very long time. I get it. I get it. Okay. Now a quick one. Are you money minded? Uh, if if you say money minded, do you mean do I think about money? Uh it's 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 open to interpretation. Like honestly, I I would love to know your point of view. So. So I I don't have to think about money. Uh, mm-hmm. which is which is what I like about it is I you know. Uh, I, I don't I don't really uh, I don't think about money from a perspective of uh, from when if I need to spend on something mm-hmm. uh, and I really need something like you know I, I, I fortunately now I'm in a position where I don't need to sort of overthink it mm-hmm. but uh, but from a point of view of making money yes I'm always thinking about new ways new ways and new new manners and and to me that's sort of like a game like it's not it's not a function mm-hmm. of making money but it's a function of how can I do continue to do things that you know mm-hmm. uh, forces me to grow and, and like I told you, it's a virtuous cycle, right? I want to make right. money not not so that I make money, but I want to make money because uh, my partner gets to make money. I want to make money because my employees can, can get paid better. I want to make money so that uh, you know uh, my whole ecosystem improves because we we do better. And, and right. I think like I have I have a girl who joined us um, as admin, you know, uh, you know, really like out of tough circumstances mm. making 12 or 13,000 11,000 I think was her starting salary with us mm. in 2014 today she gets paid 55,000 and she sort of heads our whole admin staff and wow. I'm really proud of that I'm super proud of that because that that girl uh, is sort of the definition of and it, of our growth right and she's also the shows me that um, and you know she's now like in process to sort of try to buy her own house and I really uh-huh. I'm supporting her the best that I possibly can because that, that's what entrepreneurship is, right? It's not about just you making money. It's about mm. helping others fulfill their dreams, right? Like, right. So if she, if she can, you know, uh, buy a house because we did well for ourselves and mm. for others, I think that's a pretty good sort of reason to make money. 
Right. So this is exactly what I wanted to hear. So to point that out that to my listeners as well that guys again and again I ask more entrepreneurs like are they money minded and they say come and tell the same stuff irrespective my question stays open or not. It's it's about giving back to the ecosystem. It's about you know making other people. So it's about enabling others. It's about you know helping others grow, helping people around you grow because when they grow, that is when you also grow. So. If, if, if at all you think about being an entrepreneur, see, first of all, it's definitely hard. It's very, very hard. And another thing is that you cannot grow until unless people around you grow. So for for you to grow, you have to help others grow. You just, just take it like you need to be the water for others so that they can grow. That's that's the oh, that's the only point when your growth can come into place and that you can become even richer for yourself. I mean that also always reminds me Akhil, of what Bezos said when he was asked about his Im- immense amount of wealth. He said that if I am a two billionaire, I've made others millionaires. So that's when you know uh, the others have made about two trillions in e- economy total all, and that's when he's a billionaire. So. It's, it's, it's yeah, I, I obviously, I, I would love to compare myself to him, but I, I don't think I, I, I really, uh, <laughs> even, even any of us would ever come ever, even close. But I, I think the idea is the same, right? Is, is, right. You, is, is If I focus on how much I am uh, able to help my uh, employees, my customers, my partners, my sh- you know shareholders, everything. Like I think for me, that that is the uh, right approach. Like mm-hmm. um, today, even when we go look get into partnerships with other companies and those sort of things. I'm always thinking from their perspective, are they happy? Mm. What more can we do for them? Mm. Uh, because I, I do know like business is always a two-way street, right? Like, and if I'm right. able to put myself in their shoes, mm. um, it will help, you know, me and my company be better at what we do. Um, and I'm trying to sort of inculcate that mindset, you know, within others in the company. And there are those who sort of, you know, emulate that pretty, pretty well you know it sort of trickles down that's the culture we want to create right so guys i guess this is the one of the best thing that i would say that out of all the things that i've mentioned that you need to pick up from akil is that you need to empathize you need to learn that what the other person would do you need to uh, understand that you need to figure out uh, what would it be like to step into other business shows and how to add value again so once you add value, once you fulfill what they would probably be needing, you are getting in something for big for yourself as well. So entrepreneurship is, is, is just, just not a spoon that you can dig into sugar and eat that sugar. You probably will have to get all the raw materials and then make that machine to make yourself a spoon. So it's just kind of that way. So I guess with that said, we have covered everything. Akhil and I don't think so. I'm left with anything that I would want to <laughs> ask you more. <laughs> Right. So, if you have to give out a business mantra, Akhil, what would that be? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, for me, it's just don't wait. Uh, mm-hmm. That's going to be one mantra. Like I said, there's never been a better time in India mm-hmm. to start a business than today. Uh, so, go for it. Like, uh, honestly, don't hold back. And and if the younger you are, the better you are. Like, I think it's, it's just, this is, this is the, the best possible time uh, for you to start. Perfect. So guys, you have the mantra from, from the investor, from, from a person who is doing both, who, who has his 
you know, feed dirty in both the sectors, who is doing everything. That is what really intrigues me about Akhil, that he's an investor from a bootstrap business, then toe turned into an investor and invested in so many companies, 15 to 20 investments. That's a great number to work around and to, to be having as an angel investor. So I really look up to him for that, you know, and I really wish that you're able to learn something from him. So with that said, Akhil, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you, Sartak. It was really a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. It's It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've learned so much from you. And I'm pretty sure that my listeners would have learned a lot. And whenever I'm in Bombay, I look forward to seeing you soon sometime. Thank you so Definitely. much, Akhil. Definitely, you. I'll see yep. you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. I hope that you're able to take back something insightful from this podcast and apply it in your life to be a better version of yourself and add to your Dhandoni search. If you know someone whom you think should feature on my podcast and has a very inspiring entrepreneurial journey, then do drop me a DM on my Instagram S-A-R-T-H-A-K-V-A-R-S-H-N-E-Y Sartak Varshnev. Yeah, that's me. I'm the founder of SV Clicks and SV Clicks is the producer of this show. You can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn as well with the same name. If you're willing to listen to more of such unheard, inspiring stories of the entrepreneurs, then don't forget to follow us by pressing that follow button on your podcast screen. Thank you for being such an amazing audience. Keep learning, keep growing. We'll be back soon. See ya.